Hey everybody, if you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment to like, rate, review, and follow the Chicago History Podcast wherever you listen. It really does help us reach more fans of the greatest city in the world. Today I'll be giving you three Chicago history minis, stories that didn't seem robust enough for a full episode, at least they didn't when I started researching them, but are still worthy of sharing. So if you're ready, here we go. I'm Tommy Henry and this is the Chicago History Podcast. By now, most Chicagoans are familiar with Jean-Baptiste Pointe du Sable, the explorer who was the first non-native to settle in what we now know as Chicago. But how many of you know the name Jean Lalime and his connection to du Sable and Lalime's grim place in Chicago's history? How about the name Kinsey? Chicago has Kinsey Street, a Kinsey Hotel, a Chicago-based private equity firm called Kinsey Capital Partners, the Kinsey Chop House Restaurant at Wells and Kinsey, and many other things named for John Kinsey. Throughout most of the first half of the 20th century, it was thought that John Kinsey, a fur trader, was the first non-native settler to take up residence in what would become Chicago, but we now know that is not true. Kinsey wasn't even the second person to make this area his home. What we do know about Kinsey, all these years later, is that he committed Chicago's first murder. Jean-Baptiste Pointe du Sable, the pioneer trader who founded the settlement that later became the city of Chicago, arrived in the area in the 1780s. He settled on the shore of Lake Michigan at the mouth of the Chicago River with his Potawatomi wife, Kithawa, or Catherine, employing both Frenchmen and Native Americans to work their land. When DuSable decided to leave Chicago in 1800 for what is now St. Charles, Missouri, he sold his 102-acre farm to a man called Jean Lalime for 6,000 livres, a sizable amount then. The land included the area just north of the river near Michigan Avenue. In addition to the main house, which was a 22 by 40 foot structure filled with furniture and paintings, the sale also included two barns, a horse-drawn mill, a bakehouse, a poultry house, a dairy, and a smokehouse. There was also the transfer of two mules, 30 head of cattle, two calves, 28 hogs, 44 hens, eight sickles, and a large assortment of other tools. Jean Lalime was a trader and interpreter from Quebec, working as an agent for William Burnett, also from Canada, selling and trading with the Native Americans of the area. One of the witnesses to the transaction between DuSable and Lalime was John Kinsey. Kinsey bought the property once owned by DuSable from Lalime in 1804, settling there with his wife and family. Lalime continued to work and live nearby. On June 17, 1812, Jean Lalime left his cabin and rode across the Chicago River to Fort Dearborn, where he knew he would find John Kinsey. Harsh words were exchanged as the two men quarreled. According to Kinsey, Lalime drew a gun and fired. 
the ball from his weapon grazing Kinsey's neck. Kinsey pulled a knife and lunged at Lilim, stabbing him to death. Kinsey then headed back home across the river, where he told his wife of the event while she bandaged his wound. Kinsey then headed into the woods and onto Milwaukee, then part of Indian territory, like any totally innocent man would. Discovering the murdered man's body near the bank of the Chicago River, soldiers buried Lilim within sight of Kinsey's property. The War of 1812 broke out a day later. When Kinsey returned from his post-stabbing travels, his version of the incident with Lilim was taken at face value and the issue was dropped. It should be noted that some historians believe that Lalim was acting as an informant on corrupt activities occurring within the fort and that Kinsey killed him to keep word of the misdeeds quiet. One of the men originally in charge of Fort Dearborn was Captain John Whistler, described as a conscientious soldier who was told that the Native Americans were not to be cheated or plied with whiskey to make them more agreeable to trading terms that would be unfair to them. Of course, local traders such as John Kinsey found that their business thrived when Native Americans were all liquored up. It wasn't long before Kinsey and Captain Whistler were at odds and Whistler was transferred. Whistler's replacement, Captain Nathan Heald, soon found himself on Kinsey's bad side as well. Two months after Lilim's murder, the Battle of Fort Dearborn, sometimes called the Fort Dearborn Massacre, occurred on August 15, 1812. After the fort's evacuation, Potawatomi Native Americans defeated U.S. troops. The battle lasted about 15 minutes, resulting in a complete victory for the Native Americans. Matthew Irwin, referred to as the government factor in Chicago in 1812, later characterized John Kinsey as a murderer. Irwin reported to his superior officer that he believed Kinsey had whipped up the incident at Fort Dearborn in order, quote, to preserve his own life by destroying the witnesses to the murder of Lalim. The murder of Lalim quickly faded from people's minds. John Kinsey's remaining years were filled with misfortune, charges of treason, and more, and he eventually succumbed to a stroke in 1828 at the age of 64. Oh, almost forgot. One newspaper article I found claims the Kinsey property was also the site of the office of the first justice of the peace and the scene of Chicago's first wedding. Hmm. In 1891, bones and pieces of coffin were excavated on the southwest corner of Cass, now Wabash, and Illinois streets. Those involved decided the remains belonged to Jean Lalime. Those bones were turned over to the Chicago Historical Society, now the Chicago History Museum. While they were on display for a time, according to a 2018 piece in the Chicago Reader by writer Paul Daling, the bones are now stored in the suburbs. In July of 1913, Rosalie Havemeyer, the 10-year-old great-great-granddaughter of John Kinsey, helped unveil a bronze plaque commemorating the first house built in the city, the plaque was installed in the wall of the James S. Kirk & Company Soap Factory, which once stood near Pine, later renamed Michigan Avenue, and Kinsey Street, near the site of the DuSable home. 
While the newspaper article does acknowledge the original log cabin was erected, as the piece claimed, by a Negro from Santa Domingo, it does not name Jean-Baptiste Pointe du Sable directly. Much of the information about Chicago's early days was taken from a book called Wah Bun, The Early Day of the Northwest, written by Juliet Kinsey, who was married to John Kinsey's son. Published in 1856, the book relies much on the information handed down from the author's mother-in-law, but is certainly biased and inaccurate. On August 6, 1954, a historic document was entered by the county recorder in Chicago as the 16 millionth document filed in that office since the numbering system began in 1874. The document, dated May 7, 1800, was for the sale of the property owned by DuSable to Jean Lalime. Discovered in 1913 in the records of the Register of Deeds in Detroit, which is where the seat of the territory, which included Chicago, was at the time. It was translated from its original French and gave a much clearer picture of DuSable's status and place in Chicago history. The Jean-Baptiste Point DuSable home site was designated as a National Historic Landmark on May 11, 1976. You can visit the area in Chicago by heading to Pioneer Court, located near the Chicago River, and Michigan Avenue, close to Chicago's Magnificent Mile. Sure, we have some big museums in Chicago that get lots of attention. The Museum of Science and Industry, the Field Museum, the Chicago History Museum, the International Museum of Surgical Science. Okay, maybe that last one isn't as big as the others, but how many of you have ever heard of the Haskell Oriental Museum? The Chicago Fire of 1871 left much of the city, including its cultural institutions, in ruins. But because Chicago, the city rose from the literal ashes. Rapid developments in agriculture, transportation, steel production, meatpacking, and more brought wealth to the Chicago elite. And some of those well-heeled Chicagoans focused their time and wealth into philanthropic efforts that would benefit the city for decades, even centuries to come. At the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition, thousands of visitors from all over the world witnessed many wondrous sights. On the Midway Plaisance in Jackson Park, fair attendees could shop for antiques in the stalls of Cairo Street explore a Nubian village, and visit a replica of the facade of an ancient Egyptian temple. For something a little more salacious for the uptight Midwesterners of 1891, one could even see the suggestive gyrations of a belly dancer known as Little Egypt. Midwest audiences who had never traveled beyond their state lines, having seen more of the world... Finger quotes here as not all of the representations were terribly accurate. Now wanted to see more. What better place to do that at the end of the World's Fair than in a museum? According to their website, the University of Chicago has been a center of ancient studies of West Asia and North Africa ever since its founding in 1891. The first president of the university, William Rainey Harper, was a professor of Semitic languages, and his brother, Robert Francis, was an Assyriologist. 
William Rainey Harper had been offered a promising career at Yale by John D. Rockefeller, but instead came to Chicago. From July of 1891 until his untimely death in 1906, at the age of 49, Harper served not only as the president of the University of Chicago, but also as chairman of the Department of Semitic Languages. It was Harper who enthusiastically recruited a faculty, established a museum, and initiated the program of field research so that by the end of his time as the school's president, Near Eastern Studies had become an integral part of the University of Chicago. In 1894, Carolyn E. Haskell donated $100,000, nearly $3.6 million today, to the university in honor of her late husband, Frederick Haskell, for the creation of the Haskell Oriental Museum. Now, I didn't recognize the name Frederick Haskell, but figured if his widow was donating that kind of cash to the university, he must have been some kind of big muckety-muck, right? Frederick Haskell, born in Connecticut in 1810, was the founder of the Barker's Freight Car Company. Haskell invested in a variety of different businesses through the 1830s and 1840s, including a flour mill in New York, a general store in Princeton, Illinois, textile factories, farm equipment, marketing plants, Chicago real estate, and eventually freight car manufacturing. When Haskell died of pneumonia in May of 1890 at his residence at 2103 South Michigan Avenue, he was one of the wealthiest businessmen in Chicago. As his executors sorted out his probate, Haskell's estate was valued at $1.635 million, nearly $55.5 million today. A year after Carolyn Haskell's donation, the cornerstone for the new building was set, and on July 2nd, 1896, a dedication of the museum was held. Soon after, the department moved into the newly christened Haskell Oriental Museum, where galleries devoted to West Asia and North Africa were established. Initially, the collection was comprised of a few plaster cast reproductions and a small group of exhibition cases containing a less than impressive collection of antiquities. However, the collection grew rapidly due to both private donations and the university's contributions to British field expeditions working in Egypt. In 1904, the University of Chicago Oriental Exploration Fund sent its first field expedition to Bismaya in Iraq. Two years later, an ambitious photographic and epigraphic survey of the temples in Nubia and Egypt was undertaken as part of an effort to publish all the ancient inscriptions in the Nile Valley. Now, if you're thinking, I thought this was going to be a high story, it it is, or at least it started out that way, but then I found all this other stuff about the museum to be pretty cool. So, anyway, here's the highest part. Back in June of 2023, I did an episode called Five on the Scaffold about two different murders that occurred in Chicago that resulted in the hanging execution of the five perpetrators of the two crimes all on the same day. In one of the crimes, the September 1910 killing of Clarence Hiller, the murder was solved through the very early use of fingerprint analysis. While researching that story, I came across this one. 
Four years after the Haskell Oriental Museum was opened, a group of university professors exploring the riverbed of the Nile discovered a gold amulet. It was believed that the amulet once belonged to King Menish, an Egyptian pharaoh who ruled there sometime between 3200 and 3000 BC. The amulet, said to be from around 3500 BC, weighed roughly nine penny, and yes, I had to look that up, it's about half an ounce, and was pure gold. Due to its age and historical significance, it was estimated to be worth thousands of dollars. And because Chicago, in February of 1912, someone stole the King Menage amulet from the Haskell Oriental Museum by prying open the item's glass case. Fortunately for Chicago police, the thief left fingerprints on the case in which the amulet was kept. Less than a month after the theft, Chicago police issued a warrant for John Court Hartzell, a 24-year-old living in Urbana, Illinois, roughly 140 miles south of downtown Chicago. Hartzell was also wanted in Urbana for a burglary charge from June of 1911 and had once been convicted of burglarizing the Urbana courthouse. On March 7th, Hartzell was brought back to Chicago to stand trial for the crime. During the July trial, Michael Becker, Hartzell's uncle and one of the witnesses for the prosecution, claimed Hartzell told him he had taken the amulet and had buried it so deep they would never find it. Captain Michael Evans, head of the Identification Bureau for the Chicago Police, and his son, William Evans, showed the court how the fingerprints left behind at the Haskell Oriental Museum had 18 points in common with the ones on file for Hartzell, constituting a perfect identification. When the state concluded its case, Hartzell took the stand in his own defense, denying all charges. According to Hartzell, he traveled to Urbana on February 7th, a full five days before the theft, and remained there until March 1st. As for his uncle's testimony about bearing the piece, Hartzell claimed his uncle was lying. Despite his denials, Hartzell was convicted of stealing the amulet based solely on fingerprint identification. But what happened to the amulet? In late July, Professor James Breasted, the curator of the Haskell Museum, sent out the following description of the King Menage amulet. A solid gold bar, four and a half inches long, three-sixteenths of an inch wide, one-sixteenth of an inch thick. It contains 261 grains of gold. It bears the initials AHA, supposed to signify the name of King Menish, his coat of arms, and a likeness of the temple of King Menish. On November 2, 1912, it was announced that the golden amulet of King Menish had been recovered, found buried under a stone near a university building. Detectives were alerted to the stone by an anonymous letter telling investigators where to dig, and after a few minutes of searching, they found a battered bit of gold that was later tested and weighed by an expert at the Spalding & Company jewelry store at 336 South Michigan Avenue. Museum curator James Breasted verified it was the missing amulet. As for the thief John Hartzell, he appealed the first conviction and was eventually sentenced to prison in Joliet. After being released from Joliet in December 1915, Hartzell immediately went back to the life of crime, accused of stealing a rare violin in Kenosha, Wisconsin, taking gold used for fillings, 
and other dental instruments from dental offices, stealing a collection of jewelry from the Art Institute, and more. Hartzell was detained once again in 1916, and he was sentenced to a term of 1 to 20 years for the theft of jewelry from a residence at 5209 Winthrop Avenue. Oh, I should mention, the title of the newspaper piece about that theft is Amulet Thief Jailed Again. You see, dumb decisions will certainly follow you. For nearly 25 years, the Haskell Oriental Museum was the center for the study of the Near East and a sanctuary for its records. In 1919, Professor James Breasted, with funding from John D. Rockefeller Jr., created the Oriental Institute, which became the Institute for the Study of Ancient Cultures, still in existence today. According to the university's website, over 60,000 guests visit the museum each year, and hundreds of scholars come to consult the faculty and research collections. One weird addendum, James Breasted, the curator for the Haskell Oriental Museum, died in December of 1935 of a blood infection at the age of 70. Much was made at the time of his death, as it was reported he was the seventh of 22 who looked upon the inscription on the walls of King Tutankhamun's tomb that promised death to violators of the crypt. Contrary to popular myth, there was no curse inscribed on the walls of King Tut's tomb, although as many as ten mysterious deaths have been linked to King Tutankhamun's curse at some point. The next segment was suggested by my pal Todd M. Gans, who, along with Stephanie Young, created the podcast If the Walls Could Talk about the Edgewater Hospital and its beginnings as a premier healthcare building to its decline as a corrupt Chicago facility that filled its beds with patients who weren't actually sick. If you have not listened to If the Walls Could Talk, do so wherever you enjoy podcasts. During a previous Chicago History Minis episode, I talked about the mid-80s advertising campaign for Wendy's Restaurants, which featured an octogenarian hairdresser from Chicago named Clara Peller yelling, Where's the beef? Where's the beef? To the delight of audiences. Unsurprisingly, this was not the only wildly popular advertising campaign to come from Chicago in the 1980s. There was also Spuds McKenzie. There he is. What a happening dude. There's a super party animal. Yeah. His name is Bugs McKenzie. A barbecue inside. Doo-doo-doo. A barbecue. And a cold Bud Light. A cold Bud Light. Puts him in a party frenzy. In a party frenzy. He's Bugs McKenzie, Bud Light's original party animal. Go, Spuds, go. Go, Spuds, go. But you really cooking now. All right. You can't tell it from the audio, but Spuds wasn't played by a handsome, square-jawed actor. No, Spuds McKenzie was a dog, an English bull terrier, to be specific. The character of Spuds came from the mind of John Moore, a 23-year-old art director working for Chicago's Needham, Harper & Steers ad agency. Needham, Harper & Steers also developed successful ad campaigns such as McDonald's, You Deserve a Break Today. You've been gone 
Alka-Seltzer's Plop Plop Fizz Fizz jingle. Plop Plop Fizz Fizz, oh what a relief it is. Plop Plop Fizz Fizz, oh what a relief it is. And United Airlines Fly the Friendly Skies. United Airlines, from the ground up, rededicated to giving you the service you deserve. Come fly the friendly skies. Spuds McKenzie was introduced in November of 1986, but his popularity didn't explode until a commercial featuring Spuds ran during one of TV's busiest viewing events of 1987, Super Bowl XXI. Soon, just about everyone with a TV knew about Spuds McKenzie, the original party animal. Using a dog as a symbol in advertising campaigns had been a thing long before Spuds McKenzie. Heck, he wasn't even the first bull terrier to be used to promote a product. RCA Victor used a bull terrier listening to a Victrola in the late 1920s. But this was different. This was an animal with a personality. Looking back at these commercials readily available on the YouTubes, they seem downright bizarre, with attractive women falling all over themselves to be part of Mackenzie's orbit. In ads, Spuds McKenzie wasn't even referred to as a dog, rather known as a senior party consultant. These days, Spuds would probably be called a brand ambassador or the overused influencer. Soon, t-shirts, shorts, beer mugs, stuffed dolls, posters, buttons, watches, and other Spuds-branded products started appearing on store shelves. A recent search on eBay in February of 2024 brought results of more than 3,800 items available for sale nearly 40 years after this character's introduction. According to the New York Times, sales of Bud Light beer increased by 20% between 1987 and 1988 during the Spuds ad campaign's first year. While Mackenzie was often pictured in a tuxedo surrounded by beautiful models called Spudettes, it came out that he was actually a she named Honey Tree Evil Eye or Evie for short. Evie's owners, Jackie and Stanley Oles, had brought Evie around the local dog show circuit, but Evie never really made it as a show dog. Of course, timing is everything, and at one show, Evie was spotted by a Chicago ad exec. More commercials followed, as did appearances at events and on other TV shows. Other companies tried to replicate the success of having an animal personality to promote their products. Bugle Boy Men's Clothing Company had Austin, a chimpanzee. A South Carolina bank substituted animals for people in what would otherwise be plain testimonials about banking. The result? The number of new accounts at that bank tripled. People loved animals in advertising. Even beer brand Stroh's introduced commercials poking fun at Bud Light using mutts that lacked the pedigree and polish of Spuds McKenzie. Of course, Spuds McKenzie's time in the spotlight was not without controversy. Republican Senator Strom Thurmond accused Bud Light of using their mascot to glamorize the use of alcohol and encourage underage drinking. Thurman took to the Senate floor in November of 1987, waving a stuffed Spuds McKenzie doll, demanding that Anheuser-Busch halt the use of Spuds in advertising their product. 
Quote, I am not confident in the voluntary efforts of the alcohol beverage industry to increase public awareness of the hazards of alcohol abuse, Thurman said. With 12-year-olds drinking wine coolers and wearing Spuds McKenzie t-shirts, there is no basis for such confidence. Mothers Against Drunk Driving also launched a campaign against Spuds, and some schools even began banning apparel featuring the cartoonish canine. The Bud Light Super Bowl commercial in 1989 featured Spuds playing slide guitar with no alcohol or any beverages in the ad. I knew he was going to be here. This is going to be one great party. Do you know why Spuds McKenzie has so much fun at parties? Because he's always in control. He knows how to make the party last. It takes good sense to have a good time. Spuds knows it's cool to live by one simple rule. Know when to say when. A reminder from Anheuser-Busch. Not long after this, a little more than two years after introducing Spuds McKenzie, Anheuser-Busch retired the character, saying the ad campaign had run its course. Evie the dog returned to Illinois, leaving her final years with her animal guardians in suburban North Riverside, dying in 1993 at the age of 10. Even four years after the Spuds craze began to die down, People magazine carried a piece about Evie's passing, including a quote from Bob Lashkey, Bud Light's marketing director at the time, who said, Spuds was one of the most powerful advertising ideas in the last 25 years. In 2017, Bud Light brought the character of Spuds McKenzie back for Super Bowl 51, although this time as the ghost of Spuds, encouraging a 20-something to go out and enjoy time with friends. As Spuds is voiced in the 2017 commercial by actor Carl Weathers, who recently passed far too soon, here is the audio from that commercial. Yeah, to be honest, I don't even have an excuse, man. I'm just going to stay in. Hello, Brian. Spuds McKenzie? What are you doing here? My soul can't rest when people don't drink Bud Lights with friends. Oh. Not at this very moment, your friends are hanging out and you're missing it. I just didn't think that it was like a big deal, you know? Brian, listen. Yeah. I'm a man, you're a man. Take my leash. I need to show you something. Whoa. This was last week. That's my friends. Sad bacon legs. Sad bacon legs. Sad bacon legs. What does that mean? It's an inside joke. You have to be there. But? Uh, my ex. Gotta go. This was a few days ago. Here's an easy one. The proof is in the blank. Pudding, obviously. Pants. Pants? The proof is in the pudding. They can't hear you, man. They needed you and you weren't there for them. Let's go for a walk. And here we are tonight. My friend's house. Hey, they're running a little low on Bud Light in there, Brian. Take this. You'll be a hero. Sweet. And take this fedora. You like it? Now you know what, the fedora was a bad yeah, idea. Yeah, I wasn't really feeling Okay, that. one last thing. Yeah. Crack open one of those BLs. I don't have thumbs. All right, well, you take it easy, Brian. You're a good boy in there. No. <laughs> that was Spence McKenzie reminding you. You're not just here for the parties. You're here for the friendships. Spud's here to remind you to be good friends and enjoy Bud Light responsibly.
Thanks for listening to today's Chicago History Minis Stories. This episode was written, recorded, and edited by me, Tommy Henry. As always, if you have questions about anything covered today, anything to add, or have an idea for a future episode, I'd love to hear about it. Send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com or go to the chicagohistorypod.com website and record a message by tapping on the microphone button. Depending on the content, your message may be used in a future episode. The original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on the social media pages was created by John K. Schneider, top-notch Johnny. If you have art projects and need the help of a true visionary, send him an email at angeleyesartjks at gmail.com. If you want to contribute to the production of this podcast, you can do so at the Buy Me a Coffee link in the show's notes. For a one-time donation of about the cost of, you guess it, a cup of coffee, you'll help offset some of the expenses incurred while bringing you these stories, and you'll receive my everlasting appreciation. I will be back soon with more stories from Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in, and stay safe.